Hello, and welcome to another episode of eDiscovery Chicks, the podcast about all things eDiscovery and legal tech, hosted by at least one gal who ate way too much Mexican food for lunch today and is trying to stave off a food coma. Um, anyways, we're your hosts. That is Bree. And that's Angie. And we have a special guest today. Judge Garrison is with us, and we will be introducing her here in a moment. Before we do, I'll fill you in on today's topic. We're continuing along the long and winding road of the EDRM model. And last episode, we talked about legal holds and data preservation. So we wanted to bring Judge Garrison on today and talk about what happens in the courtroom when we talk about data preservation. So that's the topic for today. Before we get too into it, Angie, would you like to introduce our guest? I'd love to. We're very lucky to have Judge Tanya Garrison today. Judge Garrison was elected to the bench in the District Court of Harris County, Texas in 2018. And in 2021, she was named the Trial Judge of the Year by the Texas Association of Civil, Trial, and Appellate Specialists. As a judge, she presides over civil cases, that is, the ones about money, not jail time. And before ascending to the bench, she was a civil litigator. So uh, without further ado, Judge Garrison, welcome. We are thrilled to have you. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Before we start talking about serious stuff, though, I know that you are an excellent cake baker. So my icebreaker question for you today is, if you were to describe yourself as a cake flavor, how would you go about that? So, you know, I saw you sent me this question, so I'd be prepared. And I came <laughs> up with like a 100 different answers because I was like, do I want to tell them my favorite, my actual favorite flavor, which would be wedding cake? But no, that's not like me. And I thought about it. And I'm like, OK, if I wanted to describe me, I think I'd pick Funfetti cake, which is nobody's favorite flavor. Um, I love Funfetti. <laughs> well, five-year-olds and people at parties love Funfetti, but like if it's your birthday, no one says, ooh, make me a Funfetti cake. <laughs> but like to me, that's just, that's my personality. I, I think I'm always looking for fun and just laughing and finding joy and throwing little sparks of color into everything. So, you know, one does always want a, a hint of color. So <laughs> to okay, quote my I favorite movie, The Birdcage. <laughs> can I tell you, though, my husband's uh, 35th birthday is next weekend, and he specifically asked for a Funfetti cake. Really? Yes. That's well, awesome. they can be delicious. I'm not saying that they can't. I mean, they're just essentially white cake. Like, that's <laughs> fabulous. It's like I always just think of the Pillsbury, I guess, instant cake mix on the baking aisle or, you know, the Funfetti frosting. And it's like, nobody should eat that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny that you say that because I, I did happen to visit your office, your chambers this this week. And the first thing I noticed when I opened up the door was like, oh, my gosh, there's so much cool artwork in here. And everybody has like these fun hangers on the doors with their names. And it's so artistic and colorful. It's like a cheery place to be. That's the first time in all of my years of being in any judge's chamber that I would ever have walked away with that experience. Is, you know, the walls, there's lots of them and there were just white and it looks like a like a mental institution if you don't put something on the walls. And actually that art, I got all of it. I sit on the board of directors I did for the last six years, five years. I was on the board of directors for juvenile justice. And so all of that artwork came from the juvenile detention centers. So like kids that are in juvenile detention, a lot of them, you know, they get art as sort of a reward. It's one of their elective courses that they get. And if, you know, if they're doing well and following their program, they get to take art classes. But it's kind of sad, actually, when they leave, a lot of them don't have anywhere to take the art to or any way to carry the art home. You know, they're Aww. carrying all their stuff onto a metro. Um, mm -hmm. to get back to where they live. And that stuff ends up just staying and getting warehoused. And I was like, this is ridiculous. We have all these white walls. We need to put it up. Well, and so, it looks awesome. That's so cool that you do that. Oh yeah. my gosh, that makes me want to cry. That's beautiful. <laughs> yeah. Some of it's a little hard to look at because you realize that these are, you know, these are children. These are kids. And they're dealing with some really heavy subjects and and it is reflected in a lot of the art. And then a lot of it is just super fun, like 
you know, a scene with a giraffe. There's something to that, though. I used to be on the board of a local nonprofit here in Seattle that worked with victims who'd been trafficked. And they had the same like art as therapy, um, you know, as part of their rehabilitation process. And the art that they created was so beautiful. And then you could see like some of the pieces had just such a darkness to them. And you could kind of, I don't know, it was really powerful. Yeah. I mean, it still looks like kids art. I mean, some's better than others, but it's still, yeah, they're dealing with some heavy stuff. That's beautiful. So from Funfetti to the perils of our society and our our juvenile (laughs) I mean, we got there quick. (laughs) Artist therapy. <laughs> well, um, I think that also cake making is like art is what we've decided. <laughs> I think everyone needs a creative outlet. I think yeah. all people that sit at desks and work and use their brain and sell their their thoughts and their mental services as their that's their commodity in life. If you don't have some sort of creative outlet, whether it be crafting or cooking or baking or gardening or anything, you need something for your hands to do. Um, that's not just type on a keyboard all day. So I agree 100%. So it's therapy for me too, I guess. It is. (laughs) The problem with baking cakes though, is that they're not exactly um, on the Weight Watchers plan or the (laughs) low keto or whatever the newest fad diet is. So uh, it hasn't done good for my waistline, but so it goes. Eh. Well, should we move this along and start talking about what can happen if a party fails to preserve evidence? Judge Garrison, I know you've dealt with parties who are alleged to have deleted evidence at some point during litigation. And we're going to get into the mechanics of what you do with that information in just a sec. Before we get there, I want to talk about why it even matters. What happens if a party deletes evidence or is alleged to have deleted evidence? What are the potential consequences? Well, so that's a big question. I mean, the reality of it is that evidence is getting deleted all the time. You have to really kind of consider the mindset of the um, the person who's retaining that evidence. What, what courts are looking at, what we're really trying to figure out is, is it deleted as part of a a SOP, standard operating procedure, like every 30 days, emails get deleted or video gets deleted or every three months or six months or whatever the retention policy is at any given company versus the guy who deletes the the video of the person who slips and falls at the grocery store because, yep, it looked bad. So there's like this <laughs> intentional mental component of it. And 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 actually both of them have really pretty big consequences either if you're in once you're in litigation and parties start engaging in the discovery process then you know you got to get to the heart of the matter and that's what the party's goal is and that's what the court's goal is is figure out what happened and 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 do some honest discovery about what evidence is out there what information is out there and if the evidence is gone you have to get into it and figure out what happened um in the law if it's deleted or it's disposed of or altered or destroyed or lost and it's in an intentional way you get into what's called spoliation it's the doctrine of spoliation not spoilation but spoliation it doesn't spoil like it does in your freezer but um or refrigerator <laughs> <laughs> it's it's where you've lost the evidence or it's been altered, destroyed, or, or deleted. And if a court finds that that is intentional, then there can be a host of significant sanctions that go along with that conduct. And it can significantly impact the results of the litigation that the parties are in. I hope that answered your question. No, no, it did. And like you said, it was a big question. So um, I am curious, what are some of those potentially like significant consequences that you mentioned? Yeah. So we're kind of forwarding to the end, right? There's a whole lot of steps before you get there. But a sanction could be anything from a monetary sanction. So if, you know, it, it, it's all on a case-by-case basis, and it depends on several factors, including if the evidence can be recreated another way, how material it is to the, to the underlying litigation, if there's other evidence that tends to corroborate what the lost evidence would have shown. Monetary sanctions may be available, but it probably spans with monetary sanctions on the low side, on one end of the scale, and then all the way on the other end of the scale, courts have the ability, should they make all the proper findings, that uh, they strike pleadings 
or they give um, adverse inference instructions in a jury charge. So the jury charge might say, take a slip and fall where some video has been deleted. One of the elements the plaintiff usually has to prove is that the, the condition of the property created an adversely dangerous condition and that the defendant knew about it. And so the jury instruction may say, because the video has been deleted, you are to presume it was dangerous and the defendant did know about it. One quick just aside there. So for those of our listeners who may not know, a slip and fall is a type of tort case. It's a personal injury case where someone literally slips and falls or has some sort of other accident like that. And then a lawsuit stems from that. And so I just wanted to plug that really quick before asking you this, which is, would it be fair to say that like, if someone unintentionally deletes evidence that's like not really material to the case, kind of an aside, that is less likely to warrant those more severe sanctions than somebody who intentionally deletes something that is incredibly material to yeah, the case. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I think honestly, if you're if it's a if it is a pure unintentional accident on a immaterial point, there's probably not going to be any sanctions at all. But what there might be is a host of hearings because the mm. court's going to have some evidentiary hearings to find out what really happened. There's going to be some some discovery about the discovery. So everyone's gonna, favorite. <laughs> yeah, I mean there's going to be where you're going to be taking the deposition of that per- person that retains the documents, the IT specialist inside the company or inside your client. I mean, there might mm. be depositions, those people might have to show up for hearings. You're going to have legal fees associated with all of this. I mean, and then, you know, if the party that thinks that party A says you did this intentionally and party B says, no, it was just a mistake. If party A loses, they may file a mandamus. It could go up to the appellate court. I mean, you could you could rack up some serious legal fees dealing with these kinds of issues. And, and you know, then the, the flip, not, that's not the flip side, but like taking it one step further, even if party B wins, no sanctions are awarded, right? I mean, we live in a modern world. Jurors are not naive to the existence of electronic information and electronic data. And so you go to try your case now and this evidence is missing. Let's say it's an email that contains some crucial information. You weren't sanctioned because you lost it, but somehow it gets insinuated or (laughs) it slips out or the jury just through use of their own imagination is like, well, where is that email? And, And their imagination starts running and you're actually really just hurting your case because that email could have really helped you. And now they're left to believe the worst and they will, they will presume the worst about people. So it could just have significant impact on your case and then how you sell it to a jury. Yeah. Well, thanks for that. I wanted to start us off with like a kind of an overview of what could happen um, at the very end of this question. But I want to kick it back over to Bree to kind of orient us to how the how the process works from start to finish. I mean, you and you kind of did that by, you know, talking about the jury and and when they're making those assumptions of like, well, didn't you look at this or why is that not there? But how does it usually come to the court's attention that, hey, there's something that's kind of missing here in this this puzzle. There's a, there's a piece that's gone awry. <laughs> yeah. So, and 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 really, when I'm speaking here, I'm relying a lot on my knowledge of the law in Texas because I'm a Texas district court judge. But a lot of the Texas law stems from federal law. It's really similar in in respects to to these questions. I mean, there's minor differences, but overall, the big picture is kind of the same thing. But what happens is, so you know, you start a case, a lawsuit gets filed, and then the next thing after the defendant answers is the parties go into a period of discovery. Right? You know that. Party sends a request and says, I want all of the emails, again, I'm making this up, all of the emails relating to a certain business transaction between the parties from 2018 to 2024. They don't exist because the party has deleted them, has a document retention policy, or just doesn't have them, or going and archiving them and finding them is just going to cost a ton of money, and they don't want to do it. Mm -hmm. Well, they're under an obligation to respond back to the requesting party that lays that all out. And under Texas law, you have to, if you can't produce the document, you have to tell the other side why. So you're going to give an explanation as to why, and the lawyer's going to write whatever the client's 
people tell them to write. Because trust me, they're not smart enough to articulate this on their own, most of them. (laughs) And then you're going to get in kind of this argument between sort of the retention people, the IT people, maybe they have experts involved that come in and say, well, you really could go get those documents. It's not as hard as you say it is. It's not going to cost as much money as you say it is. So it, it's not like a that you find the mysterious smoking gun. I mean, maybe you do that, but the other side is required to tell you if they don't have the documents. And then the party who requested it, who's now been denied, let's just say the production of documents, will go to the court. And so the court then has to kind of get to the bottom of what happened here. Mm-hmm. Um, can it be retrieved? What are the, is it overly burdensome? Is it, is it going to cost too much? How can we make this? How can we streamline the process? And so there's going to be a hearing. The court's going to conduct a hearing um, to make these determinations. And they might just rely on like affidavits from the parties, but they might also want, I mean, if it was me, I would want live testimony because I need to have things like this explained to me. And so I will be like, bring down your people and we're all going to sit in a room and talk about it and figure out what we can do, if anything. And if it ends up being that there's nothing, this stuff's gone, then the requesting party has to decide how hard they want to push it. Like if it, if you're asking for a six-year-old document and their retention policy is that they delete all emails after two years, it's probably not going to result in anything. So yeah. how hard do you really want to chase this? On the other hand, yeah, that's great, but they've managed to produce all these other emails that really help them from two years ago. Huh, I have some questions now for you. (laughs) Right. So it just depends. Before it actually gets to that hearing, what are the parties able to do and how far can they go if they suspect, you know, hey, I think that you're leaving something out. I'm going to, I smell something foul. I really want to chase this down. Well, they have to start by as with a specific request. So in Texas, you send out requests for disclosures. Usually that's what you're talking about here because you're talking about actual physical evidence, emails, video, uh, ele- anything electronic, documents, um, what, what have you. You have to have a specific request and you have to specifically ask for these, these things in electronic form. But that's really it. Like that's, if you think it's, if you think that it's, I mean, you can try to negotiate with the other side um, and say, hey, you know, I have this computer forensics expert that wants to take a look at these five things or thinks that this might exist. And the other party can say yes or no before it gets to the court. I mean, I always encourage people to try to work it out on their own um, before I have to get involved. But really, the next step is go to the court because I have to find I have to make certain fact findings so that parties can kind of go to the next step. I mean, the next step may be things like turning over hard drives, turning over computers, turning over your phone, turning over other devices that you may be using. And the courts are very, very strict in that. And the law is very strict that you're not supposed to just order people to turn their stuff over right? There's this old, I mean, it goes back for some time now, but like theory in the law that you can't let the other side just go rummage through your file cabinets looking for stuff. That's that's considered an <laughs> impermissible phishing expedition. Your hard drive or your phone or that that's that's today's equivalent of a file cabinet, right? That's where all your stuff is. And let's say you want to get to text messages. Let's say it's an employment case and you want to get to text messages that were sent between two people, I have to make certain findings in order to get a phone turned over. Yeah. So that's actually, I wanted to ask you about that. So at an evidentiary hearing where you're going to be making those determinations and making those rulings, what are you looking for? What are things that in your mind are going to to justify that kind, ordering a party to turn over a cell phone or, or other similar things like that. First, you're looking for, can it actually work? Is this a waste of everybody's time and money? Because right at the end of the day, my job is to see that justice is done. And sometimes that's protecting people from their own, from their own best instincts, our own worst <laughs> instincts. So can it actually be accomplished? That's I'm looking for that. I'm looking for, is there a more economical way? Because usually one side is going to be saying something like, yeah, we can go dig this stuff up. I mean, in my back of my head, I'm thinking the internet's forever, right? So (laughs) you can't tell me that in a cloud-based world, 
you can't get this stuff. But maybe you can't. I don't know. And they'll usually they'll say, well, we can get it, but it's going to cost us $100,000. Okay, well, is there a less expensive, more immediate way to get to it? The other side is you're also pushing on the, the, the requesting party of you don't need every email from 2018 to 2024 on this. You need the ones really that deal with maybe how this contract was negotiated in the first place. So can we, can we more narrowly tailor your requests so that we're only getting the information that is absolutely necessary? And then a lot of times it's the, it's the computer people. So the forensic experts, the IT people that just need to get in a room and talk to one another, you all know tricks of the trade and gadgets and programs, and you know this stuff way better than me. And sometimes, right, we've all played the telephone game in kindergarten where you whisper something (laughs) into your neighbor's ear and then you hear what the message is at the end after 10 people. So imagine a um, an IT person saying, well, I know we can get their emails from this device or this program. That message then goes to a lawyer who then has to put it into a request to send it to another lawyer who then sends that request to another computer expert or IT person who has now gotten a totally different message than where it started. Cut the lawyers out. And let the uh, computer people see if they can't figure a more economical solution out. Sometimes you can and sometimes you can't. Yeah, and I think that's super important to just note for our e-discovery people out there. Because I in, in a corporation, there's always this battle, or at least in my experience, there's always been a battle between legal and IT, you know, and it's kind of like Oklahoma and the farmer and the who is it the farmer and the cowboys, can they be friends? <laughs> um, and somehow they just can't ever seem to be on the same page. And IT is super excited to hand that all over to legal. So they can go deal with the judge and all the legal schmeagle mumble jumbo in the courtroom and they're out of it. But that's not really the way that the real world world works. I mean, oftentimes IT personnel can be called into the courtroom and questioned in the same way that a paralegal or an attorney or anybody else in the legal department at a company could be involved as well. So I just I think that that's great that you touched on that, uh, Judge, and it's good for our listeners to understand, too. That it's really a joint ownership process and that be careful what you do because you could always have to be in in a courtroom justifying it. I would say don't be scared of that. Like, I mean, it's intimidating. The courtroom is a very intimidating place for people who don't go there regularly. I mean, it's not for me, but I'm there every day. Um, You you have to show up and testify. I promise you, you're not going to get a good night's sleep the night before. Um, and you're going to have, but you're going to have a legal team with you that's going to hopefully hold your hand through the process and tell you what to expect. And at the end of the day, you look, if you tell the truth and you answer the questions as honestly as you can, you will not get in any trouble. Usually, especially in these kinds of discovery disputes, I'm just looking for an explanation that I can understand and a solution. Nobody's getting in trouble at this early stage. Nobody's getting, I'm not throwing the book at anybody's, at at one party or the other. There's just, there's something we need to accomplish. And that is the production of evidence. We need to accomplish this. And I want to make it cost effective for the parties. And so we have to have a happy in-between meet um, where I'm not ordering one party to turn over too much or do too much or spend too much. And at the same time, I'm still preserving the requesting party's right to get the information to build their case on. So I'm going to take us on a bit of a left turn here um, because you mentioned something earlier that I want to dig into a little bit more. And part of that is figuring out what the party's mindset was when when this evidence was deleted. And so can you tell me a little bit about the things that you look for to figure out what a party's mindset was. How do you make that credibility determination? What evidence is going to stick out to you? Well, I, the first thing is, is I'm a real person that lives in the real world and my BS detector is pretty good. So, <laughs> but you know, it's not just me. Most juries are that way too. Like I can like, don't kid a kidder. Okay. So I'm going to listen to the story. I'm going to find out what happened. I'm going to see, does it make sense? 
you know, and in Texas anyway. So it, when you're looking to see if there was like an intentional spoliation, another thing you're also looking for is something called willful blindness. Willful blindness means when somebody basically like you think of the, the, is it that ostrich that sticks their head in the sand? Yes. And yes. This, yeah. It's just like, just don't show me. I don't want to know. For, and, and, and part of this too is a party has, they have to be on notice that, that a lawsuit's coming. Okay. So let's say there's a plant explosion, a refinery explodes. Okay. And it's at XYZ Gas Corporation's refinery. They know that a lawsuit <laughs> is probably coming at that point. Okay. So litigation holds go out, discovery, I mean, uh, electronic freezes, all that stuff happens. And so does, is there somebody out there that's just, you know, bebopping around and going, do, 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 oh, I forgot. Um, and they're the ostrich with their head in the ground. That can be intentional conduct. Okay. Maybe they didn't even know that a lawsuit was coming. And so they then, then it's different, right? You're, it's a different analysis at that point. Sometimes it's, you know, there's, there's always going to be someone that testifies in a company. One guy is going to find, one party is going to go find the disgruntled ex-employees who are sometimes <laughs> going to have a different story than the people that still work there. This kid fell and got hurt and the grocery store immediately got rid of all of the rugs that they tripped over. Or somebody fell down the stairs at an apartment complex and lo and behold, the guy's out there the next day um, fixing everything. Um, well, where's the photographs? Where's the video? Where's the, you know, so you're, you're really, it's just a lot of times you're going on your gut, you're going on cooperating evidence. Um, there is a significant body of case law out there that talks about, so like retention policies are kind of the biggest thing. You know, mm -hmm. these companies will create retention policies that say, yeah, we automatically delete everything after three months. Well, is that for real? I mean, it used to be for real back in the day when you had to keep information on like CDs or video on like VHS cassettes. You can't just keep <laughs> warehouse stores, you know, storage facilities filled of tapes and CDs. But we don't live in that world anymore. When a retention policy is based upon that kind of antiquated thinking, I'm left to wonder, is this just plausible deniability? Is this your way to get rid of stuff that you, you know, you, you figure three months is enough time for me to look at it to see if anything good is in it, but then I can get rid of it if it's bad and I didn't do anything wrong. So it's just, you're looking at the evidence that the parties present. I've had spoliation hearings where people have had private investigators that have found ex-employees that come in and say some pretty damning stuff about, you know, after this incident happened, the manager told us get rid of everything you have. Hmm. So wow. it happens. Well, I know that you've shared with us that your philosophy is it's better for the parties to kind of work out these e-discovery issues or issues with data preservation um, or the missing puzzle piece or what, what have you, however you want to say it. It's better for them to work it out amongst themselves before bringing it to the court. Why is that a better tactic for them? Because I know nothing about IT. I know turn it off and turn it back on again. And that is the extent of it. J you know, I can probably use some of the, the the verbiage or the, you know, the cool lingo that you guys have. I could probably fake that for a little bit. But <laughs> throw an acronym honestly, in there. It's I, not yeah, that cool. <laughs> well, but I don't know how, what it really means or how it really works. And if I have to craft up an order and I have to tell you how to do something or what the bounds of the outer boundary of what you have to do is, and I'm using the language wrong, it's going to be confusing. It's going to, sometimes it'll be too much. Sometimes it won't get you what you really need. You also don't want me doing your accounting or building your house <laughs> or putting together computer code. That's not my skill set. And so you're taking a highly technical process and you're giving it to the person who, and I'm a pretty smart person, but like I, you know, the old joke is I went to law school because I was bad at math. Why would you <laughs> give it to me to, to figure it out? And so if you can work it out yourself, it's first off, it's way more cost effective. It's going to be way more time efficient. 
because you're actually going to get what you need, um, it's, it's probably going to turn up with a better result. So, you know, I tell lawyers all the time, look, my job is to make decisions. I will do it if you want me to, but don't complain about what you get. Mm-hmm. Um, right. <laughs> I'm going to try my best to do a good job. But I think actually there was a, uh, a Supreme Court argument recently and it was on social media and some social media issues. And I think it was Elena Kagan that said, we are the nine yes. worst experts on social media or something <laughs> to that effect. Think yeah. about that. We have social media and it and all that that implies, which is a ton of just, it can go in so many directions. And the people making the decisions about it are Elena Kagan Clarence Thomas, Samuel Alito, and John Roberts. I mean, just to name a few. Not exactly the hippest kids on the block. <laughs> so I mean, very With smart, amazing people. No spring chickens. I'm guessing that maybe they have a Facebook page. <laughs> I don't even know about that. Yeah. I mean, much less, you know, have an Instagram account or Judges are the wrong people to make highly specialized decisions like this. It's our job. We will do it. We will try our best. We hope we get it right. I think more often than not, we get the big picture right, but the intricacies of how to actually get something done is very difficult. I I can't help but sympathize with you. I spend so much time with our IT and engineering folks trying to hammer out how to get, you know, data from point A to point B. And I don't, I couldn't even count. I've spent probably 50 hours in meetings with them over the last six months. And I still am like, I don't, I don't get it. This makes no sense to me. Yeah. It's It's hard. hard. It's hard. That's why they went to a very highly competitive school and got a highly specialized diploma with significant training. I mean, and you don't just turn that over to me. No. (laughs) I mean, same way, like, you know, we, you, I wouldn't want, an IT professional doing my lawyering. Correct. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And if you need to cross-examine a witness, your IT guy is the worst person to put that cross-examination together. Well, and I've well, said for years that I think it's so valuable for f- folks in the e-discovery field to be translators, right? Like you're in the middle of IT and legal and it's your job to help those two worlds communicate with one another. And sometimes it's very stressful because they literally speak different languages. But if you can crack the code and help everybody get to a common ground and understand one another, you're golden and you will have a career in this field Um, because it's something that's really, really desperately needed. At one point, I think I spent two weeks going back and forth with someone about Slack data. And I was talking about the messaging platform and they were talking about, you know, this space on a hard drive. (laughs) And after about like two weeks of conversations, one of us was like, what? (laughs) And we finally realized it. And it was just this like classic reminder of, hey, listen, sometimes we use the same word to mean two very different things. And And it's constantly changing. Yes. Yes. It's constantly constantly changing. Um, Well, and Slack is becoming the new messenger service. (laughs) (laughs) Is is becoming the new way people think that they're hiding evidence. Mm. Um, It's not. Everybody's after it in lawsuits. You know, an accident happens and it's freeze everything. Um, there's Slack, there's WhatsApp, there's a few of these where people, you know, and, and you don't realize too, people, you know, if you're in a family law case, right, like you're, somebody's being accused of being unfaithful, there's messenger features inside games. Mm-hmm. You need to get to that information. And so it's, it just gets complicated. And yes, so speaking of what, like what processes can parties follow? What advice would you give parties to avoid the ending up in the courtroom to resolve these discovery disputes? Well, one is to have clear policies and procedures in place. Make sure everybody knows what they are and have good reasons behind them. Don't just have a three-month data retention policy because you've always had a three-month data retention policy or a two-year, whatever the time period is. Um, because I guarantee if that's the reasoning, it's not very good. It's not going to stand up. And it's based on, like I said, this antiquated storage of data 
world that we don't live in anymore. Have a good reason why you get rid of email in every six months. Have a good reason why you delete video or why you, um, whatever it is that, that you may do. I think that's, that's the best piece of advice. The second is when you get into litigation, just know that you're gonna have to turn stuff over. It's just part of the business. That's just how this works. And if you try to be obstinate and you try, well, you know, they don't have the right to this data. They don't have the right to this. I don't want to produce this in native format. That's too hard. Is there any way I can get around it? Those things are going to get you into trouble. And a lot of times those things are the things that get you into trouble and spend a lot of money and produce no results. So just accept that you're going to have to do it try to work as best you can with the other side so that you're communicating, not necessarily about all the things in the world you want, but all the things you can live with, what you need. Um, I mean, I think lawyers would do themselves a big favor if they took some time to understand the difference between wants and needs um, <laughs> in this world. And, and this is, this area is no exception. And I, you know, and communicate with your legal team. Um, you know, a lot of you guys are probably, like you said, the intermediaries between a lot of these people. But I think keeping that communication open, um, you know, I also understand that there's pressure. There's pressure from the company to keep legal costs down. So make it fast, make it easy. Sometimes that's, you know, penny wise and pound foolish. Instead of just providing some off the cuff response as to why you can't produce these emails. Maybe it's best to sit down with the lawyers and really explain it so that they can craft articulate discovery responses. One of my areas of focus is I want to be really comfortable with our limitations so that I can communicate them early and often. And I want to be really comfortable with why we have those limitations. You know, is it a software issue? Is it an API issue? Why does that limitation exist? Mm -hmm. And then I don't want to hide that ball. Yeah, I think that's really wise. And and it's not controversial. No. Right? There's no there's no corrupt motive behind it. And so it's kind of like where I see people getting in trouble is when they lie and they have no reason to or they come up with these stories and they had no reason to fabricate the reality to begin with, but they did and now it's like the cover-up's worse than the crime. So and it's I like, would say the other thing I would say too, and this is this is bigger than this area of of the world. It's bigger than this podcast. Be open minded to other people. Another person in your field maybe knows how to do something that you don't know how to do. And so instead of you know just digging in your heels and being like, "There's no way we can get it. The technology to get this doesn't exist." And then someone else goes, "Well, have you heard of?" XYZ program, and you're like, that's junk, blah, blah, blah. This is the way it's supposed to be. Well, maybe they're right. Um, yeah. It, it's worth it to hear them out and be open minded, even though it's the other side in litigation. Do you because ever see, and this is totally just a random question I just thought of, back <laughs> in the olden days, there used to be like a, sometimes there was an order that parties would share vendors for like printing, you know, documents. Like there was an order that both plaintiff and defendant had to use the same vendor to do any kind of printing of exhibits or whatever needed to happen in the courthouse because there needed to be fair costs, right? And we wanted to control those to make sure that each party was being treated fairly, blah, blah, blah. And if, and if plaintiff had to pay for the production of something, then they knew what the price was going to be from defendant. Um, do you ever see something like that happening um, with e-discovery where there's a, a mandate by the court saying, hey, look, you guys got to agree on what software you're going to use or what vendors you're going to use for e-discovery? Like, you have to agree on that protocol. I haven't seen it. Um, not to say that I wouldn't. I mean, look, if there's an agreement, it's probably not going to come before me, right? Because they're getting along and things are working as they're supposed to. I'm mm -hmm. also not naive. I mean, really what you're talking about here is when you're looking at discovery, it is, I mean, printing is one thing, but finding documents is something else. And especially when it gets to like the good stuff, um, <laughs> you know, one party does have an incentive to not be as forthcoming 
and maybe hide behind the log a little bit. So I think it, it's it's very it's a great idea. It definitely would cut down on costs. I the, what where I was thinking when you were asking your question. I mean, the truth is, look, if it gets to the point where I have to get involved, that's definitely something a court could order. Where mm-hmm. like you're one party is saying, you know, if, especially if you're going to be turning over devices, okay, which is like extreme and rare and shouldn't happen unless it's absolutely necessary. But it may be that I select a third party vendor to do some forensic imaging that no party has control over, right? Mm -hmm. And that the costs will be split equally by them. So that that could be something that ends up happening for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, do you see that happening in the space of like hosting costs, for example, like ordering the parties to split those costs. Yeah, it depends on how much it is, right? So you're kind of getting out way outside of my knowledge base here. There's <laughs> tons of cases with millions and millions and millions of pages of documents. I mean, someone's got to store that stuff, right? And I have no idea how much that costs. And people come in and they'll say things like, you know, it's this is going to cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. I don't the, I don't know. Uh, maybe mm-hmm. they're right. Um you know, the thing about costs is it usually is the requesting party's responsibility to incur that cost out at the onset. But then if they're successful in the litigation, there's usually a cost shifting mechanism where the other party may become responsible for those costs. Same thing, though, with like depositions or printing mm-hmm. costs, right. you know, filing fees or anything like that. So one thing I'm curious about at the at evidentiary hearings for these issues, will you ever see, will you ever hear testimony from experts? And if so, what kinds of experts um, would you expect to see in some of these? Yeah. So I would expect to see, the answer is yes. Um, I have had several of these hearings where people have come in. I, you see the IT people, usually Mm -hmm. there's some sort of IT manager at the company, depends on how big it is. Um, There's usually a person who might be like the direct report to that person that has to to come and talk about what specifically they did, how they went about looking for documents, you know, someone like that, then people retain experts. And so, right, like forensic examiners are going to be a big one because they're going to talk about what they, you know, what they can do on their side to limit access and limit cost. Um, you know, it could be anybody. And like I said, you know, if you're talking about some of these policies that people have where you are trying to prove some sort of malicious intent, well, that's that's a criminal term, but I don't mean it like I'm trying to murder you or something, but um, <laughs> like some sort of bad ill will, some some nefarious reason. Um, you know, if it was me and, and in the right case with enough money on the line, you might bring in an HR expert or you might bring in a corporate policy expert to talk about or or a computer expert or a, any kind of expert that could just say, look, these policies don't make sense. That's great that they wrote it in 1996 and they've done the same thing, even though the technology has changed significantly since then. God, if I was still doing the same thing that I was doing in 1996... I guess I'd be uh, saving up my allowance to buy lip smackers, but times have changed. <laughs> well, I don't know. I just bought a pair of Doc Martens, so apparently I am doing the same thing I was doing in 1990. <laughs> Those are fashionable now. I, got I would be very skinny. I'm bringing it all back. Bringing it all back. <laughs> well, okay. I don't think I have anything else. Bree, do you have any other questions? Yeah. I mean, we've talked a lot about, you know, data preservation and, um, you know, some party disputes and things like that. And of course, that all has to do with e-discovery as we see it today. But where do you see all of these different issues that kind of involve e-discovery and forensics and data preservation? Where do you see this in the next five to 10 years? Like, where do you see the most major changes in, in our industry? I think I think the biggest changes specifically in your industry are going to have to be with some of these with some policies that companies have because I I don't I mean we joked that they haven't changed since 1996 but they seriously haven't changed since 1996. I guarantee you that most grocery stores out there have the exact same policy in place regarding uh, preservation of video that they have had since the days of VHS tapes. 
<laughs> I, I, I'm almost positive of it. I mean, I shouldn't say I know that for sure, but that doesn't make any sense when you have digital recording devices and, and like I said, cloud-based storage. So mm -hmm. it doesn't, I think that is a area that is ripe for exploration by good lawyers. The area that really is, is going to be, okay, so messaging systems, messaging apps, messaging, all of that, that's going to be, there's just landmines in there galore um, because it's hard to capture and people use it way too freely. Um, mm -hmm. And so that's where the good stuff is. Let's be real. That's, that's it's where true. people say the things they shouldn't be saying and do the things they shouldn't be doing. Um, yeah. WhatsApp is the new dark back alley. So that's one thing. The other thing I think is going to be social media. How do you get access to people's social media accounts? What access are you allowed to get to um, in order to see what people are kind of, again, doing in the back alleys where they think no one's looking? A quick follow-up on your point about messaging platforms. What do you think is going to happen to companies? Because I know there are for at least like Slack and Teams, you know, there are different tiers of it. And those tiers come with different price tags and different preservation and collection abilities. Mm -hmm. So what do you think will happen to the companies who insist on maintaining those free or lower tier versions of those software platforms so that they don't have to spend the money that would enable them to collect relevant data if they'd shelled out for the more expensive version? Well, yeah, I mean, it's a double-edged sword, right? So First off, you're not going to have it preserved. So you can't show what really happened. And what really happened may benefit the company. You know, let's say somebody is accused of sexual harassment at work. Well, maybe the information that was contained in those messaging apps is where the supervisor is saying, this is inappropriate. I don't feel comfortable discussing this with you. Or this is really not a workplace conversation we should be having, right? Maybe that exists. I don't know. Um, Maybe it doesn't exist. You're also going to have to explain that, why you didn't have it. And then you're going to butt up against, because there'll probably be some software program or some something out there that goes, we can retrieve this. Someone yeah. out there will say, yeah, I know you think that you that was deleted because that's what you think you bought, but we now have a program that can retrieve that information and I want your turn over your device so that I can run this program and get what comes off of that. Right. And that's going to cost a lot of money. You know, pay it in the beginning or pay it in the end. I don't know. And like I said, then again, if there's nothing, right, then you go to trial and, you know, employee is saying, well, supervisor was harassing me and the company comes in and says, yeah, um, so all their conversation was on WhatsApp and we have that program so that we don't have to preserve data and so that all of our conversations get deleted and we can never be held accountable for anything. <laughs> okay. What's a jury going to do? And, and they're not going to say that. That's that. But the lawyer... <laughs> going after them is going to say that. Right. And the jury and will hear that. The jury mm -hmm. will hear that. And then what is the jury left to presume with the deleted info? Why did the company delete this? Then they couldn't find it. Hmm. I wonder what it said. And then the, Sus. the plaintiff really only needs a little bit of circumstantial evidence to keep them in the game. You can't only have conclusory evidence and suspicion that you go to the jury on, as long as there's a little bit of evidence enough to get to the jury, the speculative conclusion making that all people do, I guess the, 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 the imagination is so much worse than the reality most yeah. times. Yeah. You know, you do it at your own risk. Yeah. Well, I think that we're kind of at the end of our conversation today. But before we sign off, I want to ask you, Judge, do you have one takeaway that if, if our listeners heard anything as they're sipping on their martinis and bourbon tonight, <laughs> <laughs> what do you wish for them to take away from this conversation today? I would say just remind your clients that the Internet is forever. You know, there's an old meme that I've seen a million times that says, dance like nobody's watching, but email and text like it will be read out loud in court one day. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's 
So true. I like. I want to have that framed and put on my bench. That would be so inappropriate. So I, <laughs> I can't do that. But like sometimes I'm reading stuff that people wrote and things, and I'm like, did you even think Mm-mm. for one second before you hit send? Um, and then, but more specifically for your listeners, is just keep an open mind. Don't be scared of the court system. If you do end up in front of us, you're not going to IT jail. You're not, you, we just need information and we, we need your expertise and help in understanding the industry that you work in. Um, we're probably going to be really nice to you. Um, and so don't, don't be afraid of us and just You're a lot smarter than us. Well, but tell the truth, <laughs> tell the truth yeah. and you'll be fine. And so don't worry about courts. I'm trying to think what other takeaways do I have? Just keep doing what you're doing because there needs to be those translators, right? Yeah. There, just like there needs to be the translator between legal and IT, there needs to be a translator between legal and HR. And there needs to be a translator between legal and production and, you know, maybe legal and all the accounting department. I just, the lawyers, our job as lawyers is to, we get a case, we get a problem and we have to learn it so that we can retell the story to regular people, right? So we learn it on the superficial level. Um, and, and so we are good translators uh, because that's our job. We're storytellers. So keep doing what you're doing because I need help understanding it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, before we end, everybody, I want to remind you that next time that we meet, we will be talking about the next stage of the EDRM, which will be collection and processing. Ooh. Hold on to your hats. All right, Angie, <laughs> take us away. Great. Well, I want to wrap up by saying a big, big thank you to Judge Garrison. Thank you for being here with us today and sharing all of your knowledge and wisdom. It's been a treat to get to know you. And I think I'm going to have to go buy a cake tonight because all of this has made me very hungry. Funfetti. Funfetti cake. Yeah. Make your husband happy. I know, right? Uh, Well, so anyways, um, thank you listeners for tuning into another episode. Don't forget to follow us on our socials. You can find us on LinkedIn at eDiscoveryChicks. Share us with your friends, family, and colleagues, but only the cool ones. And always feel free to DM us with your beverage suggestions. Thank you so much, and we'll catch you next time.